In our sermon series this fall, we're going through the book of Genesis. It's actually a series that we were in um, in the winter and a portion of the spring, and then we kind of did some different things over the summer, but we're getting back to this series, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 uh, and 12 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Um, so this morning, we're talking about this major character in the Bible um, named Abram. Um, later, he gets the name Abraham. I'm going to try to keep it Abram this morning to stay with our text, but uh, they're both the same people. But Abram or Abraham, it's a, that character is a big, big deal. I think there's something like seven billion people on the face of the earth right now. Um, over half of that number looks to Abraham as their forefather, right? Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. He's a big, big deal. I mean, you you could say you can't even begin to understand world civilization without understanding something of Abraham. Um, And so, here we are, and we're in this passage in Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12 where we're looking at, at this time when God called Abram out and to follow him, where God called Abram, him, Abram out and to himself, and how God's calling shaped Abram's life. So let's go ahead and read this passage, uh, Genesis chapter 11 and 12. If you're using one of the Bibles in your pews, it's on page 8 and 9. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 11, verse 27, and read down through verse… Uh, 9 of chapter 12. So let's listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we start talking about this passage, let's pray just for a moment to ask for God's help. Father, we do come before you now to ask for your help. Would you open up your word to us? Would we hear you speak? Would we hear the voice of the one we just heard sung about? The voice of the one who spoke to the lame and they were made to walk, to the blind and they were made to see, the one who called even into the tombs themselves and called the death to life. Father, may we hear your voice this morning with that kind of power, in order that you would wake us up, in order that you would call us from death to life, in order that you would heal us and give us sight to follow you. Father, may we this morning hear not just Abram's call, but your call that goes out to all of us in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. There's this great scene in the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, It's not in the books, um, but it gets at a sense of something that's in the books. Um, And and it's this great and powerful scene, and it's in the the last movie, um, The Return of the King. At least I think that's that's what the book's called. I don't know if they called the movie that. But the character Aragorn is the rightful king and the heir to the throne of Gondor. That's, that's a big deal in these stories, right? And he's been playing, but he's been playing this part of this aimless, shiftless, wandering ranger. And while Aragorn is encamped in his tent with the armies on the Dunharrow Plateau, the night before the final battle, the elf Elrond comes to him. He comes to Aragorn to charge him before this battle. And it's this moment that's just Thick with tension and importance because everything has been building to this climactic moment in the stories, to this battle in the stories. And Elrond comes to Aragorn, Aragorn's tent at night, and because Aragorn is the heir to the throne, the rightful heir to the throne, he brings Aragorn his father's sword, which was an elvish sword, and dural, right? Flame of the West, forged from the shards of Narsal, if you care. Um, And in that scene, he takes the sword out, and when it's out of its scabbard, it catches the firelight, and it glints. And Aragorn is just staring in wonder at this sword. And when Elrond Elrond hands it to him, he tells him this. He says, put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. Put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. It was a call to Aragorn. You aren't a ranger anymore. You are the king. This is your new identity, and you need to live into and out of this identity. You need to let this identity shape everything about you from now forward. Abram 
wasn't encamped on the Dunharrow Plateau. He was encamped in Haran when God called him. When God called Abram to himself and gave him a new identity, and it was a call to Abraham to live out of this new identity, to let this new identity shape everything about his life. It was the call of God that made Abram great and changed his life. And what we're going to say this morning, or what I want you to hear this morning, is that the call of God can do the very same thing for you. It can make you great, and it can change your life. It can give you a new identity, an identity that shapes everything about your life. So here we go. I want us to see four things about the call of God in this passage. I want us to see that the call of God is gracious, the call of God is costly, the call of God is missional, and finally, the call of God needs assurance, okay? I'll repeat those as we go. First, the call of God is gracious. Here's part of the reason I had us read those last few verses of chapter 11. I don't know if you caught this when we were reading through, but in verse 31, it's kind of easy to miss. Terah, Abram's father, had been told by God to go to Canaan, and they were on their way to Canaan, but they stopped. They stopped going to Canaan, and they settled in Haran. Haran was far enough. You know, life could work here in Haran. Life could be good here. Life could be comfortable here. And that's where Abram was. His life was comfortable and good. But then came the call of God, and it disturbed his comfortable life. And that's important. The call of God, when it comes, it disturbs you. It wakes you up. It unsettles your settled life. It creates a disturbance in your life. It begins to shake your world apart, how you understood it up until that point. But there's something else in verse 31. It tells us Abram's family came from the Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, which probably means nothing to you, but the Ur of the Chaldeans was the center in the ancient Near East for moon worship, right? Abram belonged, this is what the the author's saying, Abram belonged to a family of idolaters. They weren't worshiping the God of the Bible, but the moon, the stars, and the galaxies. Abram wasn't faithful. Abram wasn't following God. He wasn't seeking God. Abram wasn't even trying to obey God. He didn't get the call. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand. He did not get the call because he was faithful or good or obedient. The call of God is gracious. It came to him in his unfaithfulness. Let's put it another way. Abram wasn't qualified to receive God's call. He was only qualified because he got God's call. The call was completely and entirely full of grace, right? It was God's gracious call that interrupted his life, that shook his world apart. God's call, it always goes out to the needy, to the broken, to the unfaithful, to those who are far off. Here's how Jesus put it. You may remember this verse. It's a familiar one. He said, those who are well 
have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. The Christian author Philip Yancey, he was once given the opportunity to speak to a group of women who were trapped and caught in prostitution. I don't know how you get that invitation, but he got it. Um, And after he was done speaking, he had a conversation with one of the women, and he asked her a question. So, a chance to… to have a conversation with a prostitute after you've just done pre- got done preaching the gospel to the prostitutes, what would you ask? What, what question would you ask? Here, here's what he said. He, sa- he told her, Jesus, he said Jesus was talking to some religious authorities of his day when he said this in Matthew chapter 21, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And then he asked her this, What's your take on that passage? What do you think Jesus meant? Why did he single out prostitutes? And this is what she said. Everyone has someone to look down on, but not us. We are at the bottom. Our families feel shame for us. No mother looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. In most places, we're breaking the law. Believe me, she said, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. And she listed some of those names, which I will spare you from hearing this morning. And she said, we feel it too. We are the bottom. And sometimes, when you're at the bottom, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. And she said, maybe he meant that. Yeah, maybe he meant that. (laughs) Maybe that's exactly what he meant. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His call is always gracious. It's for those at the bottom, for those who know they have nothing to offer him and are entirely depending on grace. And when His call comes to you, it will shake your very foundations, and it will change your life to know that you are loved in His grace. I know that there are some of you this morning who feel stuck in your shame. It's so hard for you. I know you don't talk about it to a lot of people, because that just increases the shame for you. But it's so hard for some of you to even imagine that God loves you. You feel like you've, you've just blown it too big this time, or, or you failed too many times in your life, or you're ashamed because you know you should be better. Or you're so ashamed, you're just so ashamed to admit what you know is in your head and in your heart. And I just want to ask you can you hear God's call of grace today? Because it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. 
respond and come into the arms of Jesus and understand that His grace is bigger and more powerful than any of your sins and brokenness. Don't be so arrogant to think that your sin could somehow be larger than His grace. His call is always gracious. Okay, second, let's go on to talk about how the call of God is also costly. Now, before I open up this point to you, I want to caution you, um, because please, please don't hear this and make the mistake of going, oh, I get it. Balance, right? The call of God is part gracious and part costly. If you go there, you've missed it entirely. The call of God is fully and completely gracious, and it is fully and completely costly at the same time. Abram was 75 years old when God called him. He was not a young man, in other words. And the first words that God spoke to him in chapter 12, verse 1, were literally, get yourself out, in the Hebrew. Get out. I mean, God was saying in the strongest possible terms, leave, go, get yourself out of here. This was a culture. God was saying, he was speaking into a culture, into a culture where land and family meant everything. That's not our culture, but that was his culture. That was where you got your identity. That's where you got your security. That's where you got your hope. And God said, leave it all. You saw it in those verses. He said, leave your country. Leave your tribe. Leave your kindred. Leave your father's household. Leave your family. Leave your security, he was saying. Leave your identity. Leave your hopes for the future. But you also can't miss, in the midst of all this, the ambiguity that's in verse 1. God just says, to the land I will show you. Right? Abram was, he was saying this to Abram, my call is costly. You're going to have to lose control of your life. You're going to have to take your hands off of your life in total submission, not even knowing where you will go. And see, this costly call was what shaped Abram's life. Here's just a preview of where we're headed in the next couple of weeks so that you understand that this costly call that Abram gets is not just a one-time thing. God said, Abram, leave. And Abram said, where? And he said, "I'll, I'll tell you later. God said, Abram, I'll give you a son. But how? I'll show you later. Abram, take your only son and sacrifice him. Why? I'll show you later. (laughs) Always in his life. The cost. Listen, when God calls you, he demands your submission to him. Right? He calls you to lose control of your life. Uh, to realize that your life is not your own. He calls you to embrace the cost of submitting to Him in every area of your life. 
in your business, in your family, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your time, in your money, in your plans, even when you do not know what the outcome will be. One of my favorite songs is a song that, uh, that Johnny Cash and you 2 did together, and uh, it's called The Wanderer. And there's this line in that song that goes like this. I stopped, out, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. What's he saying there? He's saying, we want God's kingdom, but we're not willing to give up control of our lives. We want a kingdom, but we don't want a king. We want grace, but not the king of grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know that name, famous German theologian who lived during the time of Adolf Hitler, and he was eventually put to death by the Germans. He knew something about the costliness of God's call, and he wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, and in it he wrote this. He said, God says discipleship is not limited to what you can comprehend. It must transcend all comprehension, plunge into the deep waters beyond your own comprehension, and I will help you to comprehend even as I do. Bewilderment is the true uh, comprehension. Not to know where you are going is the true knowledge. My comprehension transcends yours. The call of God is costly. God doesn't say, follow me, and you'll never experience confusion in your life. God doesn't say, follow me, and you'll never experience hurt or disappointment or suffering in this life. God says, follow my voice, not knowing where you will go, simply because I am the King, the Lord of heaven and earth. Walter Brueggemann wrote that Abram heard God's voice, and it was to be the voice around which his entire life would be organized. What about you? Have you heard God's call? Have you heard the voice around which your whole life needs to be organized? Or are you holding out? Only willing to obey if it fits with your agenda, or if it makes sense to you, or only if it doesn't mean suffering. If, if, if. God's call is costly, and it demands that you drop every one of your conditions, and you lose the word if. You may be here this morning and not be a Christian, and you need to ask yourself, why have you been holding out? I mean, a lot of the time, our questioning, our skepticism, our doubts, they're just really sophisticated ways of trying to stay in control of everything. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian, and you found yourself surprised in this life and caught off guard by suffering in this life, and it's turning your heart, even now, bitter and hard. The call of God is costly. It always is. How could it be any different? For the call of God to be gracious, it had to be costly. It was costly to God himself when he sent Jesus to suffer in your place and die for you. 
The call is gracious. The call is costly. Third, we keep going to see that the call of God is missional. God's call is always gracious. It's always costly. And it is always missional. When God calls you in, he always sends you out. Kenneth Matthews writes about verse 1 and 2. The construction indicates a purpose clause. Okay, we're talking Hebrew grammar here. Uh, You might not get all this, but it'll make my point, okay? The construction indicates a purpose clause, as the previous promises, but its expression distinguishes the final clause as the ultimate goal of the command. So you got all that? Right. In other words, in the original Hebrew, the final clause here in verses 1 and 2 is the ultimate goal of God's call to Abraham to leave. I'll put it to you this way. Here's what God was saying. Leave so that all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. God never calls you in and to himself without also sending you out to be a blessing to others. That's the point. That's it. The call of God is missional. God's call shapes your life to be oriented outward and towards others, to be filled with compassion for the hurting and the suffering, to seek justice for those who are oppressed and victims of injustice, to be on the side of those who don't have a voice in this life, to reach out to the unlovely, the unwashed, the unsophisticated of this world, to proclaim the good news of the gospel in word and deed to everyone around you, to boldly and humbly learn how to speak the truth in love. Now, how is that? Or why is that? Think about it, especially in light of what we just said in the last point. My question is this, how do you get so free that you embrace the cost of abandoning all pursuits of your own security and identity and comfort and safety and blessing and become a person who lives to give those things to others? In the Southeast, we love this time of year, right? We love the cool weather, yes, but what we really love is college football in the Southeast. Um, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Arkansas, LSU, I don't know if I missed your team, but um, I love at this time of the year listening to how people talk about their college teams. Um, We say things, I do it too, we say things like, we're going to be great this year. I hope we have a quarterback this year. As an LSU fan, we've been hoping that for decades, right? We had a great year of recruiting last year. We've just got a lot of injuries right now. We lost last night. We pulled out a victory last night. And I talked the same way, and it's funny to me, all this talk about we... And a lot of the times it's coming from people, some of you, who've never worn a set of football pads in your life, and you're talking we. We had a great recruiting year, yet you never hit the road and went to a bunch of high school football games and talked to high school kids. We won, and you were sitting on your couch or or, or in the stands, right? Your athletic ability didn't contribute anything to the win or the loss. I, I was about seven years old when my dad took me to my first LSU football game. And so when William was seven, 
I took him to his first football game, his LSU football game down in Baton Rouge. And we went to see LSU and Florida. And I got to see it all again through my son's eyes. It it was just amazing, right? Um, There are 150,000 people outside the stadium, 100,000 inside the stadium. Crazy Cajuns chanting and screaming and having fun and barbecuing alligators on their grills. It's, It's a weird experience to go down there for a football game. But when you, when you do, insert your team, you know, I don't want to make anybody mad by talking about LSU, but to be, a, to be a part of that, whatever your team is, it awakens something deep inside your heart, right? You find yourself getting caught up in all the madness and the fun and pointing at opposing fans and taunting them and screaming and all that kind of stuff. And we start talking, we, we, we. What is it? What is it that gets awakened deep in our hearts? Let me tell you, this, I know that you love college football because most of you can't even remember the point that we're on. We're talking about God's call is missional, right? What is it that gets awakened deep in our hearts? It is the feeling of transcendence. The feeling of being a part of something bigger than yourself, and it's exhilarating. Even if for a few fleeting hours on a Saturday afternoon, it fills our lives with joy, and for those moments, we feel it meaning and purpose to be caught up in something bigger than ourselves. I'm asking the question, how do you become a person who can personally embrace the costliness of God's call? and also live to be a blessing to others and be missional. Listen to me. No one has joy until you serve something bigger than yourself. You find joy when you're serving something larger than your career, your fears, or your own agendas in this life. No one has purpose or meaning for their lives until you find yourself caught up in a kingdom that is so much grander than your small world. No one moves out and towards others winsomely and magnetically until you know you have something that will change the world. Have you heard this call? The call is gracious, it's costly, but it's also missional. It pulls you into something bigger than you in order to send you out. Okay, finally and fourth, the call of God needs assurance. Abram left everything to go to this land that the Lord was going to show him, which was the land of Canaan. And this part of the story is hilarious. I have a weird sense of humor. But in verse 6, Abram passed through the land. And then it says this. We get this little note, verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And (laughs) Abram left everything to go to this land. And and he got to Canaan, and if I were Abram, I would be thinking, um, the land you promised me, it's, uh, it's occupied. <laughs> Somebody's already there. And they're called the Canaanites. Whatever Abram may have thought, you know, maybe he thought, did I mishear God? Um, did I get the address wrong? Type it in wrong in my GPS or whatever? Um, It's already occupied, right? Whatever he thought, and we don't know, because immediately, immediately God was there in verse 7 to say basically this, Abram, 
I know what it looks like right now. But trust my voice. To your offspring, I will give this land. Abram needed God's assurance to keep on going. And that's exactly what he got from God's own voice. This whole story is hinting at some pretty major problems. Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, God said. But the problem we read was in chapter 11, verse, was it 30? Sarai was barren. She had no children. Abram, I'm going to give your, your offspring this land, God had said. But the problem was, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And Abram needed God's assurance to go on. And so do we. God has made you some tremendous promises. He will forgive all your sins. He will change you to become more like his son. He will prepare a room for you in his father's house. He will use you to be a blessing to your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends. He will one day make everything that is wrong in this world right again. And our our assurance of that is threatened all the time. Just look at how sinful you are. How very broken you are. Look at how lacking in righteous you are. Look how impotent and weak you are. Look how foolish and lacking in wisdom you are. Look how unloving and selfish you are. Turn on the news and look at the world. It's a mess. How will he ever make this right? How can I know he will use me to be a blessing to others? On and on we could go. Those are just like a sampling of things I was thinking last night. And then I had this thought. Fine. Abram got assurance. He heard God speak. What about us? And I remembered this place in 2 Peter. I can't get into much detail here, but Peter was talking about this very specific experience that he had in his life. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to look it up later. And it was this time he was recalling when Jesus had invited him, along with James and John, up on top of this mountain. And on top of this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before him, bright as the sun. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Just a few weeks ago, we were told, do not look at the sun, whatever you do, right? The eclipse. You will burn the eyes out of your head. Jesus, the light was coming from him, and it was, we were told it was bright as the sun. And Moses and Elijah were there, and they heard this voice speak. It says this, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is what Peter wrote. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. It was an experience a lot like Abram's, the audible voice of God. But then the very next thing Peter wrote was this. And we have the word of the prophets, it's a way to refer to the Scriptures, made more certain than that. Here's what Peter was saying. And what Abraham or Abram would also say to you, you have something more concrete, 
more sure, more certain, more important, more life-changing than being on that mountain with Peter or being in the land of Haran with Abram. And that something is the Bible, God's written Word to you, His voice. This is cheesy, but do your best with it, and I'll try to wrap things up. During my time of dating and being engaged and eventually married to my wife, Jennifer, she has written me lots of little love letters, sometimes in cards, sometimes just on a scrap of piece of paper. And over that same time period, I've received a lot of other letters in the mail. I've even received some cards from some of you in this room. Um, But letters from my wife and letters from other people are totally different. They're both letters on a page, letters that go to make up words and words that go to make up sentences, right? But I don't read those letters the same way. I can't read them the same way. Why do I read and reread, it's a hard word to say, my wife's letters? Why is it that if you send me a letter, I promise I'll be appreciative of it, but some day's coming soon when I'm going to clean out my drawer and throw it away? (laughs) But I have a whole drawer filled with every letter and every note that my wife has written to me. I save them. I read over them from time to time. Sometimes I need to read over them from time to time just to be reminded that she said she loved me, and sometimes she likes me. Um, And I need to be assured of that. Her words are, are words that I visit and revisit. God has written you a letter. He's written you a story in His Word. And it's every bit every bit as personal and as real as my wife's letters to me. I get that many of us find our assurance shaken by our own sin, by our own failures, by what we lack in ourselves and all those different things. I get it. And God gets it too. So He's given you His Word, His voice to assure you, to assure you of what? That His call is always gracious, that it is not for the righteous but for sinners, that His call is always costly. He calls you to take your hands off of your life and submit to Him and follow the only King who can ever set you free. This call is a call to mission. And when you embrace this call to be a blessing to others, you are embracing the call of Jesus who left his father's home to be a blessing to you. This call needs assurance, and he's given you his voice written down through the ages to assure you of his love for you and his promises concerning you and his world. Have you heard God's call? Will you hear it? Maybe for some of you, for the very first time, God's call can give you a new identity in Jesus, and it can reshape everything about your life. Hear the call and come to Jesus' open arms. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word.
Father, we thank you that you are God who has spoken. You have not left us in the dark. You have given us a light unto our path. You have given us your very voice. And Father, we pray with it you would assure us, assure us of your love for us in Jesus. Assure us of your grace. Remind us of the costliness of the call to follow you and the call to be on mission like Jesus. Father, we pray that you would settle our identity in Jesus and that you would reshape our lives according to that identity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.